If you wish to become a complete and wise leader, you must embrace a larger view of the force. Welcome, everyone. My name is Devor, and you are listening to episode 26 of A Larger View of the Force, a Star Wars podcast. A reminder, as always, check out the earlier episodes of this show if you're new here, and make sure to subscribe to keep up with new episodes of the show as they come out. Also, go check out the show's merch store. The link's in the episode description. Today's episode is a bit of a doozy. We're going to be talking about Marxism, and we're going to do it through the lens of the humble battle droid. So something you may not know about me, I think I may have only mentioned it once in passing in one episode, I believe, is that I love battle droids. Unashamedly, I know that for some people, the battle droids, particularly as you kind of get on in prequel storytelling, as you get to like the Clone Wars show and then also Revenge of the Sith, that some people roll their eyes at the battle droid humor, that it's a little corny such. I love it all. I don't care. Battle droid humor is among my favorite humor in Star Wars. I love it whenever battle droids show up. I love it when they showed up in season one of the Bad Batch. I love it when they showed up in season two of Resistance. I love some of the individual battle droids that we get to meet in different media. Even though the Aftermath trilogy is the Aftermath trilogy, and we'll just kind of leave it there. I love Mr. Bones. I think he's a great character. And, of course, the greatest battle droid to have ever graced any Star Wars media. I'm referring, of course, to Roger from the Freemaker Adventures. Now, you might be thinking to yourself at this point, what could possibly be the connection between battle droids and Marxism? Well, keep listening. Because what I'm going to try and convince you of by the end of this episode is that battle droids are working class. Hashtag that. Hashtag battle droids are working class. That is the mantra. That is the thesis of this episode. I believe that in the humble battle droid, particularly the B1, I'm really thinking about them. Although maybe you could say this are the super battle droids and the droid because, but really thinking about just that B1. In the role that they play in the Star Wars galaxy and in the interests that they serve, you can find an analog to Marx's model of what capitalism is and how it operates. I know this is a fairly, this is a fairly wacky thesis, but I'm going to really try to convince you of that over the course of this episode. So on that note, let's dive in. Just a couple of notes before we get started. First things first, I'm going to be talking about Marx as an individual, just about Marx. But I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge the fact that he had a partner throughout all of his intellectual endeavors. And I'm referring, of course, here to Frederick Engels. So a lot of the ideas that I'm going to be talking about in the context of Marx and ascribing to Marx weren't really just Marx's alone. Engels was also a really important figure in helping Marx formulate and shape his ideas and also supporting him financially over the course of his work and disseminating his ideas. And then when Marx died, 
Engels was a really important figure in kind of continuing the tradition of developing his ideas and continuing to flesh them out more. So I just wanted to kind of put that out there as a kind of historical and intellectual matter. The second thing is that Marx is, of course, most famous for and associated with theories of socialism and communism and then their various applications in the real world in the 20th century and beyond. However, in this episode, we're not actually going to talk much about socialism or communism. We're really going to be looking at Marx's theories around capitalism. And actually, interesting enough, if you look at Marx's body of work, he's predominantly writing about capitalism. He doesn't write a whole ton, basically, about what the post-capitalist order looks like. I mean, he does talk about it. It's not like he doesn't address it. But he's really, in a lot of ways, first and foremost, a theoretician of capitalism. So we're really going to be looking at his ideas in that regard. So yeah, just wanted to kind of set that out and set out the terms for what's going to happen in the rest of this episode. All right, so before we get into talking about Marx's ideas specifically, I just want to talk a little bit about the influences on Marx, and in particular, the influence of one really important philosopher to shaping his worldview. So while he was at university, he was attracted to the ideas of what was at the time, particularly in the early 19th century, arguably one of, if not the most important European philosophers. And that was a guy by the name of Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Hegel is a very dense thinker. Hegel is very, very hard to read, and his ideas are very, very hard for most people to wrap their brains around. Hegel wrote on a variety of different philosophical topics. For our purposes, though, one of the things for which Hegel is known is that he developed a theory of history. So he developed this model by which, according to him, human history moved and evolved. And Hegel's model is what we would call teleological, which is really just a fancy word of saying that he believed that human history was moving towards a certain defined endgame or goal. So any kind of notion of human history that believes that all of time, all of human history is kind of moving towards this kind of predetermined end is what we would call teleological. And specifically, Hegel believed that history unfolded in what he termed a dialectical fashion. So he had what he called a dialectical model of history. And basically, he thought that history moved in this kind of three-part movement. So in the Hegelian model of history, the agent of historical change basically works like this. There is a set of historical conditions at any particular moment in time. Those are what Hegel calls the thesis. Those conditions, according to Hegel, give rise to a set of contradictions, to something that is that is in tension with the existing conditions, the way that society is organized or politics is organized and such. These Hegel refers to as the antithesis. And then he believed that the thesis and the antithesis, so basically the present order of things and then this emergent set of contradictions, will come into conflict with one another. And out of that conflict is going to emerge some sort of resolution, so some new order, some new set of conditions that he refers to as the synthesis. 
And this synthesis then becomes the new status quo. In other words, it becomes the new thesis. And then the cycle repeats itself again. So from that new thesis, from that new set of historical conditions, another set of contradictions will emerge. They will come into conflict. Then you will have a new synthesis. And then it will repeat over and over and over. So yeah, so Hegel thought about this three-part movement in human history, thesis to antithesis to synthesis. And ultimately, when we talk about Hegel's theory of history as teleological, as you know, moving towards a predetermined end, Hegel believed that human history was moving towards a greater comprehension of what he called Geist, which is basically a German word for spirit. And Hegel believed that through gaining this greater understanding of Geist, of the spirit, basically sort of his notion of God or some sort of cosmic supernatural entity, that through understanding it, humans would achieve greater freedom. He thought that was the direction in which human history was moving. It was moving towards a greater understanding of the Geist, of the spirit, and through that, the achievement of ever greater levels of freedom. Now, if you've just listened all the way through my very quick and dirty discussion of Hegel's theory of history, first of all, congratulations for making it this far and not shutting off the podcast. But second, if you listen to all that and thought to yourself, that sounds really, really abstract. Congratulations. You have landed on Marx's critique of Hegel <laughs> because that was what Marx thought too. Marx liked... Hegel's general ideas. He liked this dialectical model, but he thought all the accoutrements that Hegel added to it were just way too abstract and way too ethereal. So Hegel was talking about this geist, this spirit that humans were attempting to understand, and that history was kind of moving towards this greater understanding of the geist. And Marx, who was himself he had grown up in a religious family, but then basically by the time he gets into his adulthood, by the time he's at university, had become an atheist. He steps in and he's like, no, 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 no. Like there's none of this is, none of this works. So Marx comes in and basically says, Hegel is right to think that history moves in this dialectical fashion. But to understand the way that this dialectic moves, the engine of this three-part movement is not some spiritual thing. It's not some geist. It's not some entity that's out there. It's not, you know, as Han would say in A New Hope, it's not some all-powerful force that determines everything, not some mystical thing. In order to understand how the dialectic works, you have to look at the material conditions of reality. So you have to look here on Earth, to understand how the dialectic works and what moves the dialectic. So he sort of talks about his contrast with Hegel in a couple of places. So for instance, in the afterword to his book Capital, which is his kind of major text or one of his major texts where he kind of outlines his theories of how capitalism works, he writes a couple of things. So he says at one point, quote, the mystification which dialectic suffers in Hegel's hands by no means prevents him from being the first to present its general form of working in a comprehensive and conscious manner. With him, it is standing on its head. It must be turned right side up again if you would discover the rational kernel within the mystical shell. So what he's saying in that quote is, Hegel's right about the dialectic. He's got the basic principle right. 
all the all the mystical crap. That's all I gotta go. He's got all oh, that's wrong. That's not how it works. And he elaborates further. He says, My dialectic method is not only different from the Hegelian, but is its direct opposite. To Hegel, the life process of the human brain, i.e., the process of thinking, which under the name of the idea, so that's Gaius, the spirit, he even transforms into an independent subject, is the demiurgos of the real world. So basically, the the agent that is kind of moving the world forward. It's a Greek term. And the real world is only the external, phenomenal form of the idea. With me, on the contrary, the ideal is nothing else than the material world reflected by the human mind and translated into forms of thought. Now, again, Marx is being a little dense there too, because Marx is also a dense writer and not quite as dense as Hegel, but he can still be hard to chew on. But basically what he's saying there is Hegel's dialectic model assumes that the agent of history, the thing that is moving human history forward, is something spiritual, it's something ethereal, it's something supernatural. My dialectical model assumes that the agent of history, the thing that is moving history forward, is the material conditions of the world. And it is in that contrast, it is in breaking with Hegel in that way, in, in terms of saying, no, to understand the dialectic of history, we have to look at the world around us. We have to look at the material world and the way that it functions. It is on that basis that he ends up building his theory of history. And that is where we are going to go now to talk about Marx's theory of history and the way that he thought human history moved and operated. So most of this here is going to be coming really from the Communist Manifesto because it's there that Marx arguably lays out his ideas most clearly in a lot of his other texts. He is, again, rather dense and opaque. The Communist Manifesto was basically meant to be read by a kind of general audience, so that really forced him to actually write for normal human beings, which a lot of the time he's not doing that. So here is probably the clearest distillation of his theory of history. So we're going to kind of walk through that and also sort of walk through his ideas about the economy and his model for how economies are organized and operate. So at the beginning of the Communist Manifesto, Marx writes the following. This is probably the most famous part, the part that most people know about. Quote, The history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. Freeman and slave, patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, guildmaster and journeyman, in a word, oppressor and oppressed, stood in constant opposition to one another, carried on in an uninterrupted, now hidden, now open fight, a fight that each time ended, either in a revolutionary reconstitution of society at large, or in the common ruin of the contending classes. So in other words, what Marx is saying here, his contention here, is that the driving engine of history, again, think back to Hegel. For Hegel, the driving engine of history is this comprehension of Geist, it's this universal spirit, this godlike thing that kind of transcends the universe. For Marx, it's here on the earth, it's in the material. And for him, it is class struggle. It is struggle between different economic classes, which according to him has taken different forms throughout history. The labels look different, but it is essentially the same struggle in different manifestations. To kind of flesh that out a little bit more, and particularly flesh out this notion of class, what that means, we have to talk a little bit about 
Marxist economics and the way that Marx kind of understood and kind of theorized about the economy. So there's a couple important terms that we need to know associated with Marx. So the first is what Marx called the mode of production. So the mode of production for Marx was basically whatever the dominant economic quote-unquote ism is. So if you think about like capitalism, socialism, communism, feudalism, any of those economic isms that you might be familiar with, all of those are what Marx would call a mode of production. So that's basically the kind of umbrella economic system, whatever label you want to affix to it. Every mode of production, according to Marx, is defined by two separate qualities or traits. The first is what Marx called the relations of production. So in other words, the relations of production refer to the ways in which people are organized for the purposes of engaging in economic activity. So basically the idea, the basic idea behind this is that we all need stuff to survive. We need food, we need shelter, we need clothing and such. No one can acquire all of those things on their own. No person is a society unto themselves. And so therefore, in order to get the stuff that we need, to make the things that we need in order to survive, we have to enter into certain relationships with other people in order to make those things. And those relationships that we engage in with other people are what Marx calls the relations of production. They're the relationships that are formed in order for the production of stuff to happen. And so if you look at different modes of production, you can see different types of relations of production, different ways that people related to one another. So if you take, for instance, feudalism, so basically this is the dominant economic system in, let's say, medieval Europe. Under feudalism, you had a system in which a lord held some land, which was referred to as a manor. That land was then in turn worked by serfs and those serfs were basically bound to the land. They weren't slaves per se, but they also weren't free to come and go and leave any time they want. They had certain obligations and responsibilities to their lord in exchange for certain provisions that the lord made to them. So it was this kind of reciprocal relationship. And then if you look at, let's say, the non-serf workers in medieval Europe, so the ones who weren't working the land, who were maybe making, who were engaged in kind of primitive manufacturing, kind of early manufacturing, a lot of that non-farm labor was organized in what were called guilds, which are essentially like proto-unions. And these guilds had this whole arrangement basically where you would get taken on as an apprentice and then you would get trained up and then you would become a journeyman and then eventually you would go out and you would set up your own shop and such. So you had all of these different kind of particular relationships that look rather different from ones that we might be familiar with. If you look at, let's say, the American South before the Civil War, and you look at that system, there you had an economic system, a mode of production in which you had plantation owners who purchased enslaved people to then work the land. So you had that kind of relationship where, where the workers were essentially this commodity that were bought and sold the same way that the things that they harvested were. And then if you look at, let's say, capitalism, under a capitalist system, workers are essentially hired on the labor market for a wage. So you go out to look for a job, you look at LinkedIn, you look at Indeed, you look at wherever, you find something to apply for, the person says you're hired, 
Then they take you on, they pay you do whatever work you're doing, they pay you a wage. And then of course, they can fire you at any moment, or then also you can just quit at any time you like. So that's a different arrangement from, let's say, the serf relationship or the slave relationship. So that's when we talk about relations of production, that's what we talk about. Those relationships between people that are responsible for the productive process. And when we talk about class, when you talk about economic class, class kind of falls under this relations of production. It is from the relations of production that our class system emerges. That basically the class in which you are, and we'll sort of talk about class systems under capitalism, whether you are in the working class or the middle class or the upper class or whatever, how you want to define it, that is defined at least in part by the relations of production under capitalism or whatever economic system you're talking about, whatever mode of production you're talking about. So those relations of production are responsible for setting up whatever the class system, whatever the class hierarchy is. And again, if we if we think back to Star Wars, remember, I, I hinted at the, at the battle droids. That's what this episode is going to be about. You kind of see this with battle droids. Battle droids have their own kind of pseudo-class system. So we see different battle droids in different positions. So, you know, we get to see there are commander battle droids, so the ones that are in yellow. You have security battle droids, those are the ones in red. You've got the pilot ones, those are the ones in blue, the blue markings. Then you have just like the regular infantry droids. So each of these battle droids, by virtue of this particular marking that they have, occupy some different place within whether you're talking about, let's say, the Trade Federation at the start of the prequels or then the Separatists later on. And so there is a kind of analogy for class and class systems and then also relations of production, which is that we each occupy different positions and different relationships to people vis-a-vis the part that we play in the productive process, whether we are a worker who works for a wage, whether we are an independent business owner who owns our own shop and our own store, or whether we are the actual person who is doing the hiring, whether we are the capitalist. So that's one important component of a mode of production, which is the relations of production. The other important characteristic, the other important element of a mode of production is what Marx called the productive forces. And so the productive forces refer simply to the inputs into the productive process. So the actual things you have to contribute in order to make stuff. This could be actual what we refer to as the means of production. So this could be factories, machines, equipment, things like that. It also includes labor power. So your own actual, you know, the sweat of your brow, the actual input, that the actual physical or mental input that you put into the process of making things. All of that represents productive forces, both your own labor input, your own physical input as a human being, and then also all the things you use computers, saws, trucks, so on and so forth. So both of those things together, you've got relations of production, so a set of relationships among people in the production process, and then you've got the productive forces, so the actual inputs in the production process. Combine those together, and then you have a mode of production. According to Marx, the mode of production, whatever that economic-ism is, feudalism, capitalism, socialism, whatever, it is essential to defining the structure of the rest of society. So Marx had this two-part model. 
basically what he would call the base and the superstructure. So he basically believed that all societies were organized along this two-part model. The base of any given society was the existing mode of production. So feudalism, capitalism, socialism, whatever it is. The superstructure, on the other hand, is basically everything else. So that would be government, culture, media, religion, schools, etc., etc., etc. Basically, Marx believed that the base was essential for defining the character of the superstructure. And that basically the superstructure of any society, again, the state, the culture, the media, etc., etc., all the other stuff, all the stuff that isn't you know, the economy, all of that exists essentially to serve the interests of the base. In other words, to serve the interest of the existing mode of production. So they exist in this kind of symbiotic relationship. In another text, so not the Communist Manifesto, but an earlier text called A Contribution to the Critique of Political Economy, Marx describes it thusly, quote, In the social production of their existence, men inevitably enter into definite relations, which are independent of their will, namely relations of production appropriate to a given stage in the development of their material forces of production. So there he's talking about that notion of relations of production, that in order to make stuff, you have to get in these relations with other people. The totality of these relations of production constitutes the economic structure of society, the real foundation, on which arises a legal and political superstructure and to which correspond definite forms of social consciousness. The mode of production of material life conditions the general process of social, political, and intellectual life. The mode of production, however that is organized, however people are organized relationally to engage in production, that this comes to shape and define all the other facets of society. So it helps to define culture. It helps to define politics. It helps to define the world of ideas and philosophy. That all of that arises from the existing mode of production and ultimately, at the end of the day, serves to buttress it. So we've talked about the mode of production. We've talked about how, how the mode of production has these two elements, the relations of production and the productive forces. This is important to understanding how Marx thought that human history moves. When we talk about that dialectic that he borrows from Hegel, in terms of how Marx understood the movement of history, he thought it happens here. So according to Marx, as time passes, the productive forces advance. So basically the inputs of production advance. So in other words, you get new technologies, you get new innovations, etc., etc. So in other words, the actual inputs into production become better, they become more refined. Production is able to occur more efficiently. You're able to make more with less. You're able to make things you weren't able to make before and so on and so forth. So we have over time basically a kind of development of the productive forces. Eventually, according to Marx, the productive forces come into conflict with the existing relations of production. So in other words, the productive forces kind of develop over time. So you get technological progress and all that, and you're able to make more and more, and there's greater output and there's greater productivity. And so you just have this kind of upward trajectory over time. But eventually, that development hits a wall. There's something that is preventing further progress, further development of the productive forces. 
And according to Marx, that wall that eventually hits is the existing relations of production, the way that people are organized to engage in production. So at that point, once you hit that wall, further development of the productive forces is no longer possible. And the thing that is holding it back is the way that production is organized. And once that happens, according to Marx, this results in class struggle. So this results in conflict between different socioeconomic classes. And with that, you get the collapse of one mode of production and the emergence of another. So again, if you think back, think back to that Hegel dialectical model, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. So you have a thesis. So if we want to graph on what Marx says to what Hegel says, you have a thesis. So you have an existing mode of production that is defined by a certain set of relations of production and by the productive forces. And then from that emerges an antithesis, something that is contradictory. The way that Marx describes it is this tension between the advancement of the productive forces and the existing relations of production. Those come into conflict with one another. And then out of the result of that conflict comes the synthesis. In other words, a new mode of production. And then that process repeats itself again. So you have a new mode of production. You have development of the productive forces. Those productive forces come into tension with the new relations of production, class conflict, new mode of production. And that's the way that Marx thought history moved through this class struggle and through these upheavals that result in these new economic modes of production. Now, I know some of you listening probably feel like what I just described in the context of Marx's theory of history sounds every bit as abstract as what I was talking about in the context of Hegel. So in the interest of making his model a little clearer and really kind of trying to underscore how it works, let's talk about what Marx has to say about the rise of capitalism and then what his predictions and ideas were around its eventual demise and overthrow. So capitalism in the West, as Marx tells it, emerged from its predecessor, and that was feudalism. And I talked a little bit about feudalism a couple minutes ago. So it was that system where you have lords controlling manners, you have serfs who are in this kind of indentured state. There's this set of obligations and responsibilities between lords and serfs. And then you have this whole other non-farming sector of, econ- of the economy that is dominated by these guilds. Basically, as Marx tells it, as time passed under feudalism, you had development of the productive forces. In particular, you had agriculture becoming more efficient. Right? It was possible to grow things and grow more quicker and more efficiently than you could beforehand. And so because agriculture became more efficient over time, not everyone needed to be a serf tending to the land. So the actual population of farm labor that you needed, basically that labor power to input into growing and tending crops, that kind of steadily decreased over time as you go decades and then centuries across medieval Europe. And so as a result, a lot of those people who at one time might have been serfs and might have been bound to a lord and to a manor, they instead went into other professions. So that surplus labor went in other directions. And one particular avenue that it ultimately went in was overseas trade and commerce. As Marx tells it, the discovery of the Americas and the kind of opening up of 
global trade and travel was really important in terms of this catalyst of a shift from feudalism towards capitalism. As he writes in the manifesto, he says, quote, the East Indian and Chinese markets, the colonization of America, trade with the colonies, the increase in the means of exchange and in commodities generally, gave to commerce, to navigation, to industry, an impulse never before known, and thereby to the revolutionary element in the tottering feudal society, a rapid development. So he really saw the opening up of global trade driven particularly by the colonization of the Americas, but not just exclusively that, as being one of these really important factors accelerating the decline of feudalism. As a result of this kind of opening up of the globe and you get global trade and you get global markets and such, there started to be a tension with the feudal system because, as we talked about before, feudalism was this economic system in which people were either bound to land if you were a serf, or if you weren't, you had industries that were controlled by guilds, right? These proto-unions that I talked about a few minutes ago that basically limited the number of people who could get into a particular trade and shut people out. And so there eventually reached a time where that kind of system, with that, with those kind of restrictions, was no longer compatible with this more global system where you had people moving around, where you had trade between different countries and between different colonies and such. And once you had that conflict and tension, it ultimately led to the downfall of feudalism and its replacement by capitalism. So remember that story that I told earlier when I was talking about Marx's general model, where he talked about the development of productive forces over time and how that leads eventually to a tension between the productive forces and the existing relations of production. That's the story he tells in the context of feudalism. You have this development of the productive forces. Agriculture becomes more efficient. Fewer people need to farm, relatively speaking. Those people go off and do other things. They engage in overseas trade and exploration and such. You have that sector of the economy start to develop. And as that grows and becomes more important, it's no longer compatible with this earlier feudal relations system, whether you're talking about serfs or guilds and such. And so the two come to a head and eventually results in a revolutionary upending of feudalism and its replacement by capitalism. So when we shift now into talking about capitalism and its emergence, there's a couple important characteristics of capitalism, a couple of sort of defining traits one of the most important that Marx identifies is that capitalism is really defined by two major classes. So again, going back to the manifesto, he writes, quote, In the earlier epochs of history, we find almost everywhere a complicated arrangement of society into various orders, a manifold gradation of social rank. In ancient Rome, we have patricians, knights, plebeians, slaves. In the Middle Ages, feudal lords, vassals, guildmasters, journeymen, apprentices, serfs. In almost all of these classes, again, subordinate gradations. So he talks about if you look in these earlier periods, if you look in the classical world, if you look in the Middle Ages, you have this very complex class system where there's all these different levels that people can occupy and then levels within those levels. So it's very complex and convoluted. Our epoch, he says, basically the age of capitalism, possesses, however, this distinct feature. It has simplified class antagonisms. Society as a whole is more and more splitting up into two great hostile camps, 
into two great classes directly facing each other. And those are, according to Marx, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. So when I talked about class earlier, I talked about how class emerges from these relations of production, at least in the Marxist understanding of class, where basically class emerges as a function of these relationships that we become a part of in order to engage in the productive process. When you look at the split between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat under capitalism, you can see that very clearly reflected because you really just have these two classes. So when you talk about the bourgeoisie, we're really referring to what we would otherwise call the capitalists. So those are the folks who own the means of production. So these are the people who own the factories, the tools, the machines, the equipment and such. And they basically derive their wealth, their income from the ownership of those means and their utilization by others. And so that generates income and then that income goes to them and that's how they support themselves. So you've got the bourgeoisie in one corner and in the other corner you have the proletariat and those are the workers. The workers don't own the means of production. They don't have factories, they don't have plants, they don't have equipment, they don't have tools, they don't have machines. And so as a result, they have to sell themselves on the labor market in order to live. So they basically have to go out, they have to go to somebody who does own the means of production, they have to go to a capitalist, a bourgeoisie, basically sell their labor power, saying, I am willing to work for you, I am willing to utilize your means of production to make things. And then in exchange for doing that, they receive a wage that they use to support themselves. So you've got, again, Bourgeoisie, the capitalists, they own the means of production, and they derive their livelihood from that ownership, from its utilization. You've got the proletariat workers. They don't own any means of production. They have to go to a labor market. They have to be hired, and they derive their livelihood from getting that wage from the capitalist, from the bourgeoisie. Now, what's interesting about Marx, when you read particularly the manifesto, there are sections of it where he is rather effusive in his praise of the bourgeoisie. He ultimately thinks that they're doomed in the long run, and we're going to talk about why. But when he talks about the place of the bourgeoisie in human history, he recognizes them as occupying this really, really important place in the course of history. In particular, Marx saw the bourgeoisie as really the most revolutionary class in human history. So I've got a couple lines here that kind of illustrate what he has to say about them. So he says, quote, It, referring to the bourgeoisie, has been the first to show what man's activity can bring about. It has accomplished wonders far surpassing Egyptian pyramids, Roman aqueducts, and Gothic cathedrals. It has conducted expeditions that put in the shade all former exoduses of nations and crusades. And again, another quote, quote, Constant revolutionizing of production, uninterrupted disturbance of all social conditions, Everlasting uncertainty and agitation distinguish the bourgeois epoch from all others. And then one more. The bourgeoisie, in its rule of scarce 100 years, has created more massive and more colossal productive forces than of all preceding generations together. So basically he's saying the accomplishments of this bourgeoisie class, of this capitalist class, dwarf anything that has come before it in terms of their innovations in terms of the technologies that they've helped bring about, in terms of the ways that they have integrated the world economically, 
no class before them in human history has been able to do as much as they have in the relatively limited amount of time in which they have been ascendant. So he really talks about them as being really these important drivers of transformation and revolution. But as I said, he ultimately thinks that that will be their downfall, and we will talk about why. Paralleling the rise of the bourgeoisie, of this revolutionary class that is ushering in all of this economic change and transformation, is the rise of the proletariat, the workers. And again, he says here, quote, In proportion as the bourgeoisie, i.e. capital, is developed, in the same proportion is the proletariat, the modern working class, developed. A class of laborers who live only so long as they find work, and who find work only so long as their labor increases capital. These laborers who must sell themselves piecemeal are a commodity, like every other article of commerce, and are consequently exposed to all the vicissitudes of competition, to all the fluctuations of the market. So he's talking about that idea that illustrated before, where the proletariat don't have means of production. In order for them to survive, they have to go out into the labor market, find a capitalist who will hire them, and the capitalist will pay them a wage. And for that reason, because they have to go into a labor market to be hired by a capitalist, by the bourgeoisie, they are essentially akin to other commodities. So they end up occupying the same sort of properties from the perspective of the bourgeoisie as equipment, as tools, as machines. It's these things you've got to pay for in order to have inputs, in order to make things. And again, continuing his discussion of the proletariat, owing to the extensive use of machinery and to the division of labor, the work of the proletarians has lost all individual character and consequently all charm for the workman. He becomes an appendage of the machine, and it is only the most simple, most monotonous, and most easily acquired knack that is required of him. Masses of laborers crowded into the factory are organized like soldiers. As privates of the industrial army, they are placed under the command of a perfect hierarchy of officers and sergeants. Not only are they slaves of the bourgeois class and of the bourgeois state, they are daily and hourly enslaved by the machine, by the overlooker, and above all, by the individual bourgeois manufacturer himself. So again, as I alluded to a couple of minutes ago when I was talking about the commodification of the proletariat, as far as the bourgeoisie are concerned, the proletariat, the workers, are simply another factor in the production process. So in other words, they are really no different from a tool or a machine or a vehicle or anything like that. They're this cost, they're this expense that they have to pay for and are also fundamentally, at the end of the day, expendable in that way. And Again, if we think about our battle droids, we go back there and we go particularly to the Clone Wars, we can see that kind of attitude reflected in terms of how a lot of the Separatists treat the battle droids. So I'm thinking particularly of a couple of moments. So there's early in season one, there's that episode Shadow of Malevolence, where Grievous and Count Dooku are basically on the bridge of the malevolence and then grievous gets pissed at one of the battle droids and he just goes and you know goes on a tear and destroys him and then dooku chides him saying grievous those battle droids are expensive and then in another episode in the episode the deserter 
you get that whole like little subplot where Grievous and the battle droids are trying to get to like their ship or an escape pod or something like that. And they're basically marching along. Grievous is, you know, riding this animal. All of the battle droids are kind of marching in tow behind them. He refuses to allow them to stop, basically to recharge. There's one droid who kind of complains about it, who basically says, well, we could move faster if you allowed us to ride one of the pack animals. And then Grievous just immediately responds by busting out his lightsaber and cutting down the battle droid. So you see there in the treatment of the battle droids, and there is a, there's a kind of contrast that is drawn there between the ways that the Separatists treat the battle droids and the way that the Republic treats the clones. Because if you go back to the Malevolence arc, that's where we get that famous, where we get that Plo Koon scene that's gotten memed where he and the clones are basically like outside. They're like in the asteroid field. And one of the clones says, we're just clones. We're expendable. And Plo Koon replies, not to me. And so there's this contrast that's basically drawn where the Republic and the Jedi are treating these clones as individual people versus Grievous and the Separatists are treating the battle droids basically like any other machine or tool. Uh, They're not treating them as individuals who have characters or personalities who need to be respected or anything like that. And that's reflected, again, in the Clone Wars. And it sort of echoes the way that Marx writes about the bourgeoisie and the proletariat and the way that the bourgeoisie sort of understand the proletariat as basically another commodity is no different from tools and machines that they acquire these characteristics of machines doing these repetitive tasks being bought and sold on a labor market not literally as in like enslaved people but in a kind of figurative sense being bought and sold and you know when we think about what marx is writing about here because he's writing the manifesto in the kind of latter decades of the 19th century and if we think about the larger historical context at the time, what he's responding to is you do have this shift in the nature of work that's happening. So if you think back, if you listen to the episode that came out before this about the Gilded Age, I talked there about the increasing emphasis on efficiency and the work of Frederick Winslow Taylor, who was this guy who was studying, basically going into all of these workplaces and really carefully studying how workers went about making things and then was trying to find the most efficient means to do so. One of the consequences of all this emphasis on efficiency and surveying workers and timing them and all that is that a lot of their work became more rote and repetitive and more machine-like. And so Marx is looking at that happening around him in the world and that is informing the perspective that he is developing on capitalism. Ultimately, despite how revolutionary and transformative the bourgeoisie have been, Marx believed that as with earlier classes in human history, that ultimately the bourgeoisie would bring about their own demise, and with that, the demise of capitalism. So now we're going to talk about basically Marx's theories about what will ultimately bring about the end of capitalism. And we have to, again, go back here to Marx's theory of history. So recall, remember, what is the agent of economic revolution? It is this conflict between the relations of production and the productive forces, that those two come into tension with one another, and that brings about the end of any particular mode of production. 
And Marx believed that in the same way that happened in feudalism to give rise to capitalism, that would ultimately happen to capitalism also. And he kind of lays that out, if you read the manifesto, how he imagines that happening. I quoted Marx earlier where he's sort of talking about the bourgeoisie and how they're going about all of this revolutionizing and transforming of the economy. Well, according to Marx, in their drive to constantly revolutionize, in, in their impulse to innovate more and more and to grow more and more and to make more and to sell more and so on, the bourgeoisie will eventually turn global. They will find that they will not have enough markets in the domestic realm, so i.e. the West. And so he writes, quote, The need of a constantly expanding market for its products chases the bourgeoisie over the entire surface of the globe. It must nestle everywhere, settle everywhere, establish connections everywhere. The bourgeoisie has, through its exploitation of the world market, given a cosmopolitan character to production and consumption in every country. So in other words, Marx thought that this would result in what we know as globalization. So basically, as capitalists traverse the globe looking for both new sources of raw materials, for new sources of workers, and then also new markets for their products, and capitalists expanded their influence beyond Europe into all the corners of the world, that ultimately there would be this trend to essentially homogenization, where you would have, you would both have a globally interconnected economy, and with that, you would have the kind of export of a increasingly global culture. That's what he's talking about when he talks about a cosmopolitan character to production and consumption. So on the one hand, the things that people made would be made in different places all around the world. And then the things that they would consume would also come from all these different corners of the world and everybody would be a part of it. And so he writes, quote, in place of the old local and national seclusion and self-sufficiency, we have intercourse in every direction, universal interdependence of nations. And as in material, so also in intellectual production, the intellectual creations of individual nations become common property. National one-sidedness and narrow-mindedness become more and more impossible, and from the numerous national and local literatures, there arises a world literature. So basically what he's talking about is, as this global economy matures, instead of having individual nations or regions where they're all going to have their own kind of unique cultures and traditions, and they're going to be kind of cut off and secluded from one another, you're going to have this increasingly globalized culture that everybody's going to be participating in and contributing to. And you're going to have this kind of homogenization of culture. And if you think about what happened basically over the kind of end of the 20th century going into the 21st century with globalization, that mirrors a lot of what Marx is talking about in terms of the export. If you think about the export of American culture around the globe or Western culture more broadly, and then you have Hollywood movies in Asia and in other parts of the globe, and you've got people eating at McDonald's and drinking Coca-Cola and things like that. So all of that that we've seen over the last couple of decades mirrors in some important ways the stuff that Marx was talking about at the end of the 19th century, where basically as the economy became more globalized, culture would also become more globalized. So as this process of globalization was unfolding, as the capitalists, as the bourgeoisie were kind of making their way all across the map of the world and bringing the whole world 
into this capitalist system. In that process, the global proletariat itself would grow. So basically the kind of global working class would increase in number, basically as more and more people were pushed into its ranks. So he writes, quote, the lower strata of the middle class, the small tradespeople, shopkeepers, and retired tradesmen generally, the handicraftsmen and peasants, all these sink gradually into the proletariat, partly because their diminutive capital does not suffice for the scale on which modern industry is carried on, and is swamped in the competition with the large capitalists, partly because their specialized skill is rendered worthless by new methods of production. So in other words, what he's saying is that as capitalists become more globalized and you have more global competition, a lot of these smaller local business people are no longer really able to compete on the global market because they're going to have these larger corporations, these larger entities that are coming from everywhere, not just in their region or just in their country, but from all around the globe. And so they're not going to be able to remain competitive in that context. And so a lot of those people who are small shop owners or small businessmen, they're going to lose out and they're going to have to go and become workers because they're not going to be able to compete effectively against bigger, more global businesses. And so a lot of those people who otherwise would have worked for themselves, who might have owned their own store, their own business, they're all going to go and become proletariats and they're going to have to go into the labor market and sell themselves for a wage now. So again, continuing, quote, with the development of industry, the proletariat not only increases in number, it becomes concentrated in greater masses. Its strength grows and it feels that strength more. The various interests and conditions of life within the ranks of the proletariat are more and more equalized in proportion as machinery obliterates all distinctions of labor and nearly everywhere reduces wages to the same low level. So basically, you have more people becoming proletariats. The working class is getting bigger. As it's getting bigger and as you're having, again, development of the productive forces, new machines, new equipment, new innovations, both of those processes are basically going to end up pushing down the wages of workers. Because again, the working class is rising. You've got more people on the labor market. That's going to push wages down. As more labor becomes mechanized, machines can do more and more Then that devalues human labor. Basically, those forces are going to start, you're going to start basically getting a larger and larger proletariat class, a working class that is experiencing a steady decrease in their standard of living. And because of that development, because you've got more and more workers, again, relative to the size of the bourgeois class, the capitalists, whose lives are getting basically worse and worse, their standard of living is going down because wages are going down. That means that the bourgeoisie and the proletariat are going to come increasingly into conflict. And Marx thought that that conflict was going to unfold in stages. So first, he thought that that a lot of that conflict was going to be localized, which is to say it was really going to involve workers and capitalists in one workplace. So one particular factory over here and another factory over there, you would have workers and that particular capitalist, you know, duking it out over, let's say, wages and living conditions. Maybe they want to organize a union and the boss refuses to recognize it and such. So you'd have these kind of small scale battles breaking out here and there. Eventually, though, as the number of workers grow, 
as you have this process of expanding ranks of the proletariat and their material circumstances become similar because again, wages are all going down. So you're going to have this kind of homogenization of working conditions. Marx writes that, quote, the workers begin to form combinations. In other words, what we would call labor unions against the bourgeois. They club together in order to keep up the rate of wages they found permanent associations in order to make provision beforehand for these occasional revolts. So you go from local conflicts that are happening at particular workplaces. From there, you go into the formation of labor unions. And so then you start having these conflicts spreading, let's say, across several workplaces in one industry or sector. Let's say you might have all the coal miners. They might all go on strike. All the steel workers might go on strike. All the railroad workers might go on strike in, let's say, a particular region or a particular state or something like that. And as you start getting these labor unions, as you start having workers kind of coming together, over time, the union of workers will grow. So these labor unions, these combinations, as Marx called them, are going to grow in size and strength. And he thinks that's thanks in part to the instruments of modern capitalists. So he writes, quote, This union is helped on by the improved means of communication that are created by modern industry and that place the workers of different localities in contact with one another. It was just this contact that was needed to centralize the numerous local struggles all of the same character into one national struggle between classes. So basically what he thinks here is that the workers, in order to bandy together and in order to more efficiently organize their strikes and other activities against the bourgeoisie, they're going to use a lot of the innovations of modern capitalism. Now, some of these I talked about, you know, again, if you think about late 19th century in the Gilded Age episode, I talked about telegraphs and telephones and eventually radios. And Marx basically thought, well, workers are going to start using those technologies too in order to get in contact with people who are far away to learn about issues that are happening in other places in order to develop greater solidarity because they're going to learn about workers, let's say, on the other side of the country who are dealing with the same problems that they are, or on the other side of the globe who are dealing with the same problems they are. And that's going to become this engine for workers to find each other and to develop that kind of solidarity in their struggle against the capitalists. And through that process, you're going to have this, this conflict between the capitalists and the workers, between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. It is going to start growing in scale. So the struggle is eventually going to go basically from local, regional to national, and ultimately will become global, according to Marx. So he writes again in the manifesto, quote, The essential conditions for the existence and for the sway of the bourgeois class is the formation and augmentation of capital. The condition for capital is wage labor. Wage labor rests exclusively on competition between the laborers. The advance of industry, whose involuntary promoter is the bourgeoisie, replaces the isolation of the laborers due to competition by the revolutionary combination due to association. The development of modern industry, therefore, cuts from under its feet the very foundation on which the bourgeoisie produces and appropriates products. So in other words, what he's saying there is through the process of the bourgeoisie expanding and kind of centralizing the production process, in the process of going global, opening up all these markets, bringing all greater and greater populations in the world into the capitalist system, that it also becomes the engine, the means by which 
workers themselves are able to find each other and to come together and to achieve solidarity. And through that, they're going to use that strength to ultimately do battle with the capitalists and ultimately overthrow them. So again, you're seeing that the whole Marx's model where he's talking about there, the tension between the productive forces and the relations of production. You have under capitalism, development of the productive forces, globalization, more machines, more equipment, technological innovation. That grows the ranks of the working class. You have more and more people becoming proletariat. That pushes down wages. Their numbers are growing. Workers start to get discontented. What do they do? They start duking it out with the capitalists. First, in individual workplaces, then they start forming unions, and then they start growing in number and strength. So that whole process of the development of the productive forces over time ultimately leads to the conditions that bring about the tension between the capitalists and the workers. So we've talked about Marx's theory of history, and we've talked about basically the story that he tells about the rise of capitalism, its development, and then its eventual demise. And I've talked about some of the ways that the story and the portrayal of the battle droids in Star Wars kind of mirrors what he has to say about the relationship between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat under capitalism. But of course, we can't talk about the battle droids independent of the Clone Wars, because they obviously play a really important role in that. And as we know, the battle droids served the Confederacy of Independent Systems, a.k.a. the Separatists. And as we meet the Separatists first in Attack of the Clones and then again fleshed out more in the Clone Wars animated series, what we see is that the Confederacy of Independent Systems is they have this Senate, of course, of the various systems that belong to the Separatist Alliance, but they're led at the top by these various corporate interests. You've got the Trade Federation, the Commerce Guilds, the Techno Union, the Corporate Alliance, the Banking Clan. And the role that they play, these corporate entities, in terms of ultimately instigating this crisis and then by extension the clone wars and then sending out all of these battle droids to fight in the service of their cause, this also mirrors some Marxist writing about war and theorizing about war. So after Marx died... And we go into both the very end of the 19th century and then particularly going into the 20th century. What we see is that there are various thinkers who end up taking his ideas and basically running with them in new directions, basically building upon the foundation that he left behind. And of course, in this episode, there is no space at all to talk about the various strains of Marxism that emerge, particularly in the 20th century and the various differences between them and their nuances. But I want to talk about a few in this kind of this chunk of the episode. First and foremost, I want to talk to is arguably the most important and most influential post-Marx Marxist thinker and writer, and that is, of course, Vladimir Lenin. Lenin is really important because he sought to translate Marx's theories and ideas into practical applications. He was really looking to pull off the kind of 
worker uprising and worker revolution that Marx was writing about in the manifesto and elsewhere. And he really wanted to kind of lay out how that was actually going to take place. And in the process of kind of thinking through and working through that, Lenin took Marx's ideas in some new directions and developed them in different ways than Marx had originally conceived them. And once again, in this episode, there is not enough time and space to go into all the vicissitudes of Leninism. But one of the most important distinctions that Lenin makes, and one of the places where he kind of breaks with Marx a little bit, is that Marx, when he was writing about the worker revolution and these uprisings that were going to take place that I talked about in the context of the manifesto, he thought those would begin in advanced capitalist countries. So he thought he was going to certain places like Britain and America. Lenin, however, who was not from those places, he's from Russia, which at the turn of the 20th century is a not an advanced capitalist nation, far from it, is really a kind of rural backwater. Lenin thought that it was possible to basically leapfrog agrarian societies like Russia over capitalism and straight into socialism. So Marx thought that there was this progression that needed to go where you went from, let's say, a rural agricultural feudal society, then you went into capitalism and you had development and maturing of capitalism over time, and then that set up the conditions for the overthrow of capitalism, and then you would move on into further stages. Lenin thought, well, maybe there's a way that you can basically start in your rural agrarian agricultural place basically jump over the capitalist stage and then go straight to socialism. And that basically was what he sought to do in Russia. And again, because we can't talk about the history of the Soviet Union and also comparable countries like the People's Republic of China, Lenin is sort of right. That is kind of what Russia ends up doing after the Bolshevik Revolution. But again, I can't really go into the details about that here. So you've got Lenin basically in Russia trying to organize this workers' revolution, and he's doing it through his Bolshevik party, basically him and his fellow Marxists, they are agitating against the reigning czarist government. And the cause of Lenin and the Bolsheviks gets a big boost in the 1910s by the outbreak of World War I. So one of the things that you see, interestingly enough, is that most socialist parties in the West— so in places like Britain and France and Germany and Italy and so on, most of them support the war. So most of them kind of abandon their ideological priors and back the war, basically out of a sense of nationalism and patriotism, and then also to some degree a certain amount of strategic thinking and believing that if they are shown as loyal to the government, loyal to this cause of this war, then that maybe that will get them a certain amount of buy-in with the government and a certain amount of sway and influence. There are really kind of two big exceptions to that. One of them is the Socialist Party of the United States, which comes out very vehemently against the First World War and suffers a great deal of state repression because of it. And the other is, of course, I've already mentioned, the Bolsheviks in Russia. The two of them are very much exceptions to the rule in being rather adamantly against their nation's involvement in World War I and the waging of World War I in general. Lenin fleshes out his objections to this war and fleshes out some of his ideas about war under capitalism in a text that he writes in 1917 called Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. 
In the preface to that text that he ends up actually writing a few years afterwards, that gets kind of appended to it, he writes, quote, The War of 1914 to 1918, a.k.a. World War I, was imperialist, that is, an annexationist predatory war of plunder on the part of both sides. It was a war for the division of the world, for the partition and repartition of colonies and spheres of influence of finance, capital, etc. And so Lenin in this text lays out his own kind of history of capitalism that, again, kind of mirrors what a lot of Marx is talking about. And he talks about the way that it matures into imperialism, into development of colonies and empires, and that how that, by extension, gets into conflicts like the First World War. So in this text, he writes that, basically, as capitalism matures, there is a shift from what he calls free competition to essentially mo- monopoly capitalism. So he writes, quote, The enormous growth of industry and the remarkably rapid concentration of production and ever-larger enterprises are one of the most characteristic features of capitalism. So he thinks that capitalism initially has this, what he calls free competition. You've got all these different businesses. They're all competing against one another for customers, for workers to work for them, and so on. Over time, you start to have concentration. You start to have businesses buying up one another. You start the rise of big business. Again, think back to that Gilded Age episode, if you listen to it, where I talk there about the rise of monopolies and horizontal and vertical integration. And as you start having that happen and you start getting these bigger and bigger businesses that are dominating larger and larger portions of their industry or sector, you start getting this shift towards what he calls monopoly capitalism, where you have certain sectors that are really dominated by one, maybe two really, really big businesses. And With that, with the rise of these big businesses and these monopoly companies, comes the rise of finance capital. So what we would call in kind of colloquial language, quote unquote, big banks. So you start having the emergence of these large financial institutions that exist in order to provide capital, in order to give out loans and money to these monopoly enterprises. So you have the rise of monopoly capitalists, and then you also have the rise of basically finance capital. You have these big banks, these big financial interests that are working to kind of buttress this monopoly system. So once you have monopoly capitalism, once you start having these sectors of the economy that come to be dominated by these very big corporate interests, that results in what Lenin describes as, quote, the export of capital. So in other words, what starts to happen is that these capitalists, these monopolies, start looking beyond their home countries for new places in which to invest because they've already they've already dominated the sector, the economy in their respective country. There's no more growth opportunity. And so as a consequence, they start looking beyond the borders for other markets, other opportunities, other places in which to expand. And in particular, they focus in on what Lenin calls, quote unquote, backward countries. We would now refer to as developing nations where, quote, Profits are usually high, capital is scarce, the price of land is relatively low, wages are low, raw materials are cheap. So you start looking for these underdeveloped nations that don't have a lot of industry, that don't have a lot of competition, other businesses, other competitors, where you can hire people cheaply, where you can get raw materials very cheaply. And they start expanding into those places. They start building factories there. They start selling some of their 
products there. They start hiring workers there and such. And so as that, as you have that export of capital and these monopoly capitalists start setting up bases in other countries and start exporting some of their, their capital, their investments into these foreign territories, two things start to happen according to Lenin. The first is that monopolies start to enter into both formal and informal agreements basically to dominate certain sectors of the global economy. So he writes, quote, as the export of capital increased and as the foreign and colonial connections and spheres of influence of the big monopolist associations expanded in all ways, things naturally gravitated towards an international agreement among these associations and towards the formation of international cartels. So basically what he says is that as these monopoly capitalists start expanding their influence around the globe, what they start to do is they start to enter into these arrangements whereby they basically kind of carve up the global economy, basically say, okay, you electrical monopolists over there, you're going to dominate the electricity, the energy sector over here. You rubber monopolist over here, you're going to dominate the rubber industry over there, and so on and so forth. You, the steel monopolist, you get this chunk and such. And they're going to come up with these, basically these, these cartels, these arrangements where they're going to basically collude with one another in order to not compete and to maximize their own profits. And again, we think about Star Wars, big corporate entities colluding with one another. That sounds a lot like the Confederacy of Independent Systems. Think about the Separatist Council, all those corporate interests that are on there. They're working together, right? So there's a parallel there. So you have that happen first. You have this, these kind of agreements between all of these monopolists, according to Lenin. The second thing that happens as a result of this global export of capital is the emergence of colonialism. So in other words, what starts to happen is that nations begin to claim colonies so that they can provide raw materials and also serve as a market for finished products. So countries like Britain, France, Italy, Germany, they start going out and acquiring colonies in places like Africa and Asia and the Pacific and elsewhere so that their national business interests will be able to have these territories where they will both be able to make things cheaply and also sell their finished products. So he writes, quote, Colonial possession alone gives the monopolies complete guarantee against all contingencies in the struggle against competitors, including the case of the adversary wanting to be protected by a law establishing a state monopoly. The more capitalism is developed, the more strongly the, the shortage of raw materials is felt, the more intense the competition and the hunt for sources of raw materials throughout the world, the more desperate the struggle for the acquisition of colonies. So what he's talking about is the acquisition of colonies provides this ready way in which monopoly interests can maintain their monopolies and basically have areas have territories where they can operate free from competition because basically the government kind of step in and basically say, okay, this monopoly over here, they get to dominate the rubber plantations in this colony or the tea, the tea plantations in this other colony and such. And they can basically set up those rules where certain monopoly interests have exclusive rights. And basically as time goes on, you're going to have a greater and greater scramble and contest for the acquisition of, of colonies because you're going to have more countries getting involved. You're going to have more business interests wanting to 
get more territory because they're going to want to, they're going to have this kind of insatiable appetite to expand, get more markets, get more raw materials. So they're going to have to constantly get more colonies and you're going to have increasing tension between nations as they're trying to gobble up more and more parts of the map. And so that's why Lenin believed that there was intimate relationship between capitalism on the one hand and its development and the rise of imperialism and the growth of these colonial empires, particularly at the end of the 19th century. He writes, quote, Imperialism is capitalism at that stage of development at which the dominance of monopolies and finance capital is established, in which the export of capital has acquired pronounced importance, in which the division of the world among the international trusts has begun, in which the division of all territories of the globe among the biggest capitalist powers has been completed. So there he's really summarizing that whole chain of development that I talked about, where you get the emergence of monopoly capitalism, the export of capital around the world, the emergence of these international cartels, and then with that, ultimately, the division of the world by capitalist powers into various colonial empires. And then this then in turn leads to another stage, which is it leads to conflicts like, according to Lenin, the First World War, because in Lenin's interpretation, the way that he saw it and the way that a lot of other Marxists saw it, they saw the First World War as this war between these colonial powers, because you had Britain, you had France, you had Italy, you had Germany, all of whom had colonies. They saw it as this war among these colonial powers who were really fighting against one another in order to basically concentrate territory and markets even more. That Basically, they were going to war so that they could take each other's colonies and possessions and ultimately grow their own empires. And that kind of actually happens at the end of World War I, which is that Britain and France end up actually dividing up a lot of, let's say, the former Ottoman Empire or the German colonial empire. Again, can't get into that here. But suffice it to say that Lenin is semi-onto something when he's talking about this. And again, if we think about Lenin's interpretation here and his discussion about how these monopoly corporate interests influence the rise of imperialism and then influence subsequently these conflicts like World War I, we can see a parallel in the prequels of the Clone Wars. Because when we look at the Clone Wars, what we see is that the battle droids, and you could even say to some degree also the clones on the Republic side, they are utilized to advance various corporate interests both among the separatists in the case of the battle droids and you know the trade federation and the commerce skills and the corporate alliance, but also to some degree among the republic. We get to see that at various points in the Clone Wars. Particularly think of, let's say, the Kaminoans, where the Kaminoans, by virtue of supplying the clone army, they end up getting a seat in the Senate and we get different episodes where they are engaged in various machinations to ensure that the republic keeps hiring more clones and this war keeps going because it benefits them financially. And so you see that at different points in the TV show where you've got entities like the Kaminoans or the banking clan or elsewhere who are using this war as a way to basically line their own pockets. And in the process, soldiers like whether it's the battle droids or even the clones are sort of pawns in this corporate struggle. That's the story that in part George is telling in the prequels. And it really kind of mirrors some of the Marxist interpretations of things like imperialism and things like war and why they're fought. Folks like Lenin saw economic interests as being the drivers behind these types of struggles. And similarly, when you look at the Clone Wars, there are also corporate interests driving these, the struggle there too. 
All right. So we've talked about the Clone Wars a little bit there and the way that they kind of intersect with certain Marxist interpretations of war and the economic motives behind it. In this final section, I want to talk a little bit about the autonomy of battle droids. I want to talk about droid control ships and about shutdown commands and the relationship with that and the parallels of that with some important concepts in Marxist theory. One of the things that we see with the battle droids at various points is that they have different degrees to which they are under the command or control of some larger entity. So, of course, when you look in the Phantom Menace, those battle droids on Naboo were all under the control of the, the droid control ship. Once it is destroyed, they're all shut down. As we go on, we start to see battle droids acquiring more of an independent flavor. So, for instance, there's an episode of The Clone Wars, the episode Liberty on Ryloth. There's one particular scene where there are some battle droids kind of just marching about. They come across a droid that's been destroyed, and they they point him on and say, look, it's RB551. And then one of them says, no wonder he got blasted. He's one of those older models programmed by a central computer. And then another says, not like us, we're independent thinkers. And we get examples of different independent battle droids. You know, I talked towards the beginning of the episode, I talked about Mr. Bones in the Aftermath series or Roger in the Freemaker Adventures. These battle droids that have their own mind or even somebody like Kalani later on. Of course, as we know, at the end of Revenge of the Sith, when the Clone Wars are wrapped up, Palpatine ends up issuing the shutdown order to basically deactivate all of the battle droids, that thus kind of giving lie to their autonomy and kind of illustrating the ways in which they are controlled, minus, let's say, somebody like a Kalani who ends up disobeying the shutdown command and keeps operating on Agamar when we get to see him in Rebels. So there's a lot of playing around in the prequels with the autonomy of the battle droids, the extent to which they have their own personality or under their own control, and ultimately the extent to which they are just these pure tools and instruments that can be turned off and shut down and have to obey different commands that are issued from their masters. And in this, in this we can find another parallel and overlap with certain Marxist theories. So to go back early in the episode, when I was talking about Marx's model of society, I talked about this dual model of base and superstructure, where basically the base is the existing mode of production, whatever the dominant economic ism is, and the superstructure is basically all of the rest of the stuff. So that's government, that's the education system, that's culture, and so on and so forth. And the superstructure exists in order to support and maintain the base to make sure that the prevailing economic system continues and endures and doesn't face any challenges. In fleshing out this model, this base superstructure model, Marx writes, and this is in his contribution to the critique of political economy that I quoted earlier, he says, quote, it is not the consciousness of men that determines their existence, but their social existence that determines their consciousness. So what he basically says is that each of our individual, essentially, consciousnesses, our notions of ourselves, the way that we relate to the world, the way that we think about the world, the way, the way that we approach problems, our philosophies of life, our worldviews, all of this is shaped and conditioned and molded by the society in which we live. 
basically the inputs that society puts into us by way of the media, by way of schools, by way of culture more generally. And all of that is shaped and informed by the prevailing mode of production, in our case, capitalism. So capitalism and its needs end up shaping the way that we think of ourselves and conceive of ourselves and the way that we kind of look at, look at and move around in the world. And this idea, these notions of the ways in which capitalism kind of shapes our worldviews and our ideas and the way that we think and the way that we are raised was developed by later Marxists in the 20th century. And I want to talk about two of the most important. The first is an Italian Marxist by the name of Antonio Gramsci. He was arrested by the fascist regime in Italy in the 1920s. And while he was in prison, he wrote these texts that came to be known as the prison notebooks. And in the prison notebooks, he writes, among many things, probably the most important things that come out of there, is he develops a theory for how culture is used to maintain capitalism. And in particular, he develops this concept that comes to be known as cultural hegemony. Cultural hegemony refers to basically the prevailing set of beliefs, values, and worldviews, which are molded, according to Gramsci, by the capitalist class. And under the theory of cultural hegemony, the purpose of these beliefs, these values, these worldviews that capitalism and the capitalist class kind of inculcate into larger society and kind of spread out through various arms, whether that's schools, whether that's media, whether that's politics. The purpose of those is to present the existing social, political, economic order as good, as natural, as inevitable, and as not something that can or should be reformed or upended in any sort of way. So it's meant to kind of normalize the status quo. That is the function of cultural hegemony. And he writes at one point in the prison notebooks about the role of ideas and of intellectuals in molding these ideas and kind of creating an existing cultural hegemony and kind of maintaining capitalism. So he writes, quote, every social group coming into existence on the original terrain of an essential function in the world of economic production creates together with itself organically one or more strata of intellectuals which give it hegemony and an awareness of its own function, not only in the economic, but also in the social and political fields. So what he's saying there is that along with the rise of any kind of economic class, particularly dominant economic class, so with the rise of capitalists, comes a parallel rise in a class of intellectuals who start to mold ideas and beliefs and values and worldviews that come to buttress and support and complement this rising capitalist class and their interests and their needs. So these intellectuals, this world of ideas, is essential part of the growth and the emergence of this economic class, particularly the capitalists. And so he continues, he writes, quote, The relationship between the intellectuals and the world of production is not as direct as it is with the fundamental social groups, but is, in varying degrees, mediated by the whole fabric of society and by the complex of superstructures of which the intellectuals are precisely the functionaries. What we can do is to fix two major superstructural levels. The one that can be called civil society, that is the, the ensemble of organisms commonly called private, 
and that of political society or the state. These two levels correspond on the one hand to the function of hegemony, which the dominant group exercises throughout society, and on the other hand to that to that of direction domination or command exercised through the state and juridical government. The intellectuals are the dominant group's deputies, exercising the subaltern functions of social hegemony and political government. I swear I will explain what Gramsci is talking about here. These comprise the spontaneous consent given by the great masses of the population to the general direction imposed on social life by the dominant fundamental group. This consent is historically caused by the prestige and consequent confidence which the dominant group enjoys because of its position and function in the world of production. And the apparatus of state coercive power, which legally enforces discipline on those groups who do not consent either actively or passively. This apparatus is, however, constituted for the whole of society in anticipation of moments of crisis of command and direction when spontaneous consent has failed. What the hell is Gramsci talking about here? Okay, what he is talking about here is, he is talking about, you have this mode of production, you have this economic system, capitalism, let's just talk about that, that has these interests that need to be served. The interest of growth and expansion and just continued existence. In order to ensure that capitalism survives and thrives, you basically have these two, what he calls these two kind of broad superstructures that emerge. On the one hand, you have society as we know it. So schools, the media, everything there. That's what he refers to as civil society, clubs, organizations, all that stuff. And on the other hand, you have the state. You have the government. You have police. You have armies. You have courts. You have all that. Both of these two entities exist in different ways to serve the interests of capitalism and the capitalists. So you have, on the one end, you've got civil society over here. Again, that's culture, that's media, that's schools, etc., etc. They are meant to provide what he refers to as spontaneous consent. So they are basically exist there in order to normalize capitalism and the capitalist status quo and to create this impression that ordinary people consent and accept this system and are fine with it and are willing to go along with it. They kind of inculcate the support for capitalism in, by presenting it, as I talked a few minutes ago, as natural, as inevitable, as a positive good and such. So that's the function of civil society. And that's what's happening there. Then on the other hand, you have the state. So again, police, armies, courts. And they basically are there to bring down the letter of the law when you have situations in which there is not quote-unquote consent. So if you have people rebelling, if you have people uprising, if you have people causing agitation because they are against the prevailing social order and they don't accept it, they don't think it's good, then the state steps in with the police, with the armies, with the courts, with prisons in order to force consent to happen. So consent is basically created two ways. One is that it is inculcated through these institutions, whether it is the media consume, the schools we go to, the clubs and organizations that we're a part of. And the other way, it's literally enforced through the institutions of the state. And those two together create this hegemony. Basically, they create the system in which capitalism is allowed to endure and is supported and is given this imagined consent that it creates 
the purpose of the superstructure is to create this illusion of consent and support for the prevailing economic order. So that's what he was talking about in that great big section that I quoted just there. So that's Gramsci and his idea about cultural hegemony. Another Marxist theorist later on in the 20th century who develops a parallel model to what Gramsci is talking about is a French philosopher by the name of Louis Althusser. And Louis Althusser writes a text in 1970 that is called Ideology and the Ideological State Apparatus. Ideology is one of these terms that is really important in Marxism and that gets kind of bandied about and is kind of broad and effusive and difficult to really wrap your mind around. Althusser defines ideology as, quote, the system of the ideas and representations which dominate the mind of a man or a social group. So anything that we talk about, beliefs, values, worldviews, philosophies of life, all of that fall under the category of ideology. The function of ideology, and by extension what he calls the ideological state apparatus, which I'll explain what that is in a moment, is to ensure what Althusser calls the reproduction of the conditions of production. So again, this notion of making sure that capitalism endures, that is allowed to grow and expand and operate free of disruptions. So that's what he means by the reproduction of the conditions of production. So ensuring that the capitalist system of production continues unfettered. And in writing about ideology, so basically the system of ideas, beliefs, values, worldviews, and its relationship to capitalism and specifically to this goal of the reproduction of the conditions of production, Althusser advances two theses. So the first is he says, quote, ideology represents the imaginary relationship of individuals to their real conditions of existence. So he elaborates, quote, all ideology represents in its necessarily imaginary distortion, not the existing relations of production and the other relations that derive from them, but above all, the imaginary relationship of individuals to the relations of production and the relations that derive from them. What is represented in ideology is therefore not the system of the real relations which govern the existence of individuals, but the imaginary relation of those individuals to the real conditions in which they live. So what Althusser is, again, saying there is that the function of ideology under a capitalist system is not to present the world as it actually is, to provide an accurate picture of the way that, let's say, capitalism operates, the way that people relate to one another in the context of capitalism or in any other context, the, the way that they function in these relations of production, but instead to provide an imaginary version of them, a different version, perhaps a version that is more palatable and acceptable to people than the reality in which they are, in fact, toiling. So ideology has this deceptive function. It is presenting this alternate version of reality that differs in important ways from the ways that people are in fact living their lives. It is meant to kind of pull the wool over our eyes and to prevent us from seeing the world as it actually is. So that's one thesis about ideology. It presents this imaginary relationship. The second is he says that, quote, ideology has a material existence. So he says, quote, an ideology always exists in an apparatus and its practice or practices. This existence is material. So in order to understand how ideology functions in, let's say, a capitalist society, to understand the ways in which, let's say, people are conditioned through being instilled with certain beliefs, values, and practices in order to accept the existing order of things, in order to accept the world that capitalism has created, 
that functions, that occurs through sets of institutions. So there's actual stuff that is involved in that. It's not these abstract ideas just floating out there. There are whole systems, there are whole organizations that exist in order to promulgate these ideas and enforce these ideas. That's what he means when he says ideology has a material existence. And this is where we get into the means in which ideology is inculcated throughout capitalist society. And I'll say there's a two-part model. So he talks about the ideological state apparatus on the one hand versus what he calls the repressive state apparatus. The ideological state apparatus are those organizations and institutions that disseminate the dominant beliefs, culture, values, worldviews, etc., to the general population. And he gives a couple different examples of different ideological state apparatuses. So he talks about religious, familial, educational, cultural, communications, and so on. So the ideological state apparatus takes all these different forms. Schools, churches, clubs, associations, the media, so on and so forth. So that's the ideological state apparatus. It disseminates these ideas. It is the conduit through which we learn these values that allow us to accept the existing capitalist status quo. The second one, the repressive state apparatus, essentially refers to the arms of the government. So that is police, courts, armies. So basically that is, again, to go back to what Gramsci was talking about, that's basically the, the iron boot, the iron fist of the law. These two apparatuses, the ideological state apparatus and the repressive state apparatus, serve the same end. They're both existing to prop up capitalism, but they do it in different ways. So Althusser writes, quote, All the state apparatuses function both by repression and by ideology, with the difference being that the repressive state apparatus functions massively and predominantly by repression, whereas the ideological state apparatuses function massively and predominantly by ideology. And he continues to say, Quote, whereas the repressive state apparatus constitutes an organized whole of whose different parts are centralized beneath a commanding unity, that of the politics of class struggle applied by the political representatives of the ruling classes in possession of state power, <laughs> the ideological state apparatuses are multiple, distinct, relatively autonomous. And then, again, quote, whereas the unity of the repressive state apparatus is secured by its unified and centralized organization under the leadership of the representatives of the classes in power executing the politics of the class struggle of the classes in power, the unity of the different ideological state apparatuses is secured by the ruling ideology, the ideology of the ruling class. So what's he talking about there? Again, translate it into more normal English. So in the first part, he talks about these distinctions between how they function. So the repressive state apparatus uses mainly repression. So that is, again, there is an uprising, there's a revolt somewhere, and the police come in, the army comes in, they start shooting people, they fire off tear gas, the tanks come in. That's the repressive state apparatus. People get locked up in prison, people get shot, people get killed. That's repression. The ideological state apparatus functions mainly through ideology, which is to say, you don't have people pointing a gun necessarily or people getting locked up or in prison or anything like that. Instead, it basically just disseminates these ideas. So you go to school and you learn certain things. You turn on the TV and you learn certain things. You pick up books and you learn certain things and so on and so forth. So that's a distinction. He thinks both apparatuses, both of them use repression ideology, but the repressive state apparatus mainly uses repression and the ideological state apparatus mainly uses ideology. The second distinction that he talks about is that the repressive state apparatus is 
organized and centralized. So if we think about the state, if we think about government, there are defined orders. You've got local, county, state, and federal, and there's a clear hierarchy and chain of command and order of precedence. You know, the army and the navy and such the military is organized along all these ranks. Police are organized along different ranks. There's very clear hierarchy and structure in who reports to whom. The ideological state apparatuses, however, are more distinct and free-floating. They don't have that clear kind of structure. If you talk about schools or the media or things like that, you might have certain companies, you might have school boards, you might have boards of education and things like that that are involved in influencing those institutions, but they tend to be more diffuse. There's not a very as clear hierarchy chain of command and a way to kind of enforce orders kind of down the line. So there are a little, the ideological state apparatus, the things that make that up, are a little bit more diffuse versus the institutions of the repressive state apparatus, which have very clear hierarchies and command structures. The third distinction he talks about is that the repressive state apparatus, the kind of controlling interest of that is the ruling class. It's basically those in power. It's the politicians and military leaders and such who are appointed and various bureaucrats who are appointed. So it's basically members of the ruling class who are involved in running the repressive state apparatus and making sure that it serves the interests of the ruling class and by extension, the capitalist class. So again, you have a very clear set of leadership and control and who's in charge and such versus the ideological state apparatuses. In that case, you don't have like, there is not like some person who's running all the schools or one person who's running all the media or another person who's running all the churches or whatever, and that they're colluding with one another and making sure that there's a clear command and control structure. Instead, the thing that unites them and makes sure that they are all kind of in sync and serving the same project and agenda is basically ideology itself. It is the worldviews. It is the culture. It is the beliefs. It is the values. That provides the unifying structure versus what provides the unifying structure under the repressive state apparatus is these clear hierarchies and leadership and these people in positions of power. So those are some of the distinctions that he draws. And so you can see there's certain parallels between what Gramsci is talking about when he's talking about cultural hegemony and the ways that it's enforced through both civil society and the state, and then what Althusser is talking about with the ideological state apparatus and the repressive state apparatus. So you have capitalism being maintained by these two arms, by, on the one hand, these institutions that pass on certain worldviews and certain ideas that make the existing status quo more palatable and acceptable, and then you also have the state, you also have the government that is able to bring in violence in order to make sure that the existing order survives. And through that way, control and consent is secured. So on the one hand, you have order, and then you also have the manufacture of, of consent. You have this illusion created that people are buying into the system when, in fact, they are being presented with these ideas that are distorting the way that they think about themselves and the way they think about the world and the way that they relate into it. So again there, if we look to Parallels of Star Wars, if we think about these battle droids and these battle droids who at different points imagine themselves to be autonomous, but in fact are kind of guided and directed by these larger forces, whether it is these corporate interests, whether it is literal machinery in the form of control ships, whether it is in the form of 
a single Sith Lord who can give like a shutdown command and turn them all off. You can see the ways in which the battle droids' actions and the way they behave are being literally guided, and that there's a parallel there with the more abstract and metaphorical ways in which, according to Marxist theory, we are all guided and molded and shaped by capitalism in order to serve the interests of the capitalist system. So yeah, that was, that was, that was a lot of quoting there, and some of it is rather dense, but I hope that sort of fleshes it out a little bit more and makes a little more clear what they were talking about. So yeah, on that note, we wrap up. <laughs> that is where I will leave you on this wild whirlwind tour of Marxism and its connections to the world of battle droids. <laughs> if you've reached this point in the episode, I don't know what you're thinking anymore. <laughs> I don't know if you've either bought into my hashtag battle droids are working class thesis, or you think that I have totally gone out to sea. I have no idea. Let me know. <laughs> but uh, I hope that you've been able to tease out some of and see some of these connections, at least, when we look at our humble B1 battle droids and the ways in which they are organized into their various classes, we might say, if we want to use some Marxist lingo, the ways in which they are these instruments of these large monopoly corporate interests in the ways in which they are guided and controlled and their actions are molded by this larger structure, that in these examples, we can see certain parallels between the, with the Marxist model of the economy and capitalist society. We can see a parallel with the commodification of the proletariat, as Marx writes about it, the way that workers are treated as this commodity that can be bought and discarded, that we can see a parallel with Lenin's theories of imperialism and the way that empire and that war serves these capitalist interests and the interest to acquire new territories and new markets, and some of the parallels with the role that the world of ideas and ideology and philosophies play in buttressing capitalism as Gramsci and Althusser talk about it. So I do hope, even if you might feel as though it is a bit of a stretch, I hope that you can see certain connections there. And I hope that that informs, I hope that that maybe changes the way that you look at our little buddies, the B1s, a little bit differently now when you think about them. And maybe you, maybe you see something to relate to in them. But yeah, as I said, hashtag battle droids are working class. I will die on this hill. So yes, I hope you agree with me on that. So what to expect on the next episode? Episode 27 is going to come out a little bit later. Ordinarily, I would be putting out the next episode on October 4th. I have to delay it basically for life reasons. I'm not going to be able to put it out then. So the next episode will be coming out on October 18th. And in that episode, I will be talking about Star Wars Visions. At the time that I'm recording this, and at the time this episode has come out, Visions is not out yet. Unless you have gotten an advanced screener, you have not seen it, I have not seen it yet. But in that episode, I will be talking about Star Wars Visions and about the episodes that we get and about just what kind of story Star Wars storytelling we get out of it. And I will be joined by a special guest. So joining me in order to go through Star Wars Visions will be Colleen McMillan of Bohemian Geek Studies. So I am very much looking forward to having that 
conversation with her and getting her insights and takes on whatever it is that we are going to be getting on the 22nd of September. Until then, make sure you are subscribed to the show. Please rate and review the show if you're able to do so. If you're not already following the show on Twitter, you can do so at a larger review pod. You can also follow me on Twitter at Demondum. And until next time, look for the force and you will always find me.